Now, as we have come to the end of the book of Acts, I have felt that it's been important for us to review some of the major themes and the major lessons that have run through the whole book. So we had a study a few weeks ago where we talked about prophecy, because that comes up a lot in the book of Acts. Not so much end times prophecy, but at work in the church. We had a teaching recently where we just hammered evangelism, because that's another big theme of the book of Acts. And today, we're going to be talking about the place of miracles in the church, but especially healing in the life of the church. And as we read through the book of Acts, it's kind of hard to miss that there's a lot of healing going on. You read through the Gospels, it's the same way, and then you get into the book of Acts, and there's a lot more healing going on. And this makes sense, because the book of Acts, as I said from the very beginning, is kind of like a highlight reel of these first years of the church, these first 30 or so years. And I think most faithful Christian ministries, if you were to compile a 28-chapter book on 30 years of ministry, you'd be able to see some pretty cool things. But we make a mistake when we look at the book of Acts and we say, well, that was, that was back then, it was a special time, and it's over now. Without trying to keep it a secret, let me just say, we believe that God has made special promises in his word concerning the healing of the body, and that those promises extend to this day. And that when we read through the word of God, sometimes those promises are even tied to what Jesus did on the cross. Which makes it a grievous mistake for us to neglect and ignore the doctrine of healing in scripture. It's also a bad idea for us to allow the bad example of some people to push us away from what the Bible says. We, we shouldn't do that on anything. And I've made this point a thousand times on a thousand different messages because it's true. Just because one group runs away with a doctrine and goes into some bad territory doesn't mean we should get away from it. That means you go back and you reclaim it. Say, no, this is what the Word says. And this is what we're going to do today. We're going to look at what the Bible says. Because that's all I'm really interested in. Amen? Stories are great and testimonies are great. I love them. What does the Bible say? That's the most important thing. But I think when you look at what the Bible says, and you look at our own lives, even in our own midst, we have seen the healing hand of God. But for whatever reason, when it happens, we always think, well, this is an exception. I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's what the Bible says. So we're going to look at this story of Paul here in Acts 28, and we're going to use that as a springboard to review what not just the book of Acts, but the whole Bible has taught about the healing of the body for a Christian. So let's read these first 10 verses. This is kind of a fun story. This is after the shipwreck, after they ran aground and drifted on planks that they ripped up from the boat. It says in chapter 28, After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, there's a picture, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius. 
who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. What a story. Paul is on that long journey to Rome. He wasn't getting a fair trial in Caesarea. He appealed to Caesar. He's been sent to Rome, but their ship has run aground on the island of Malta. Malta is 58 miles south of Sicily. So the Lord actually used the storm to bring them close to where they're wanting to go. But it's a tiny little island right there in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And we know from the next verse that they're going to spend the winter there. They're going to spend three months. Now when they get there, it mentions the native people. This is the Greek word barbaroi, which is where we get our word barbarian. Now I always read this story growing up as a kid because I read native people and I thought of like Indians and people with like headdresses and you know carrying sticks. That's not what we have here. These were not uncivilized people, so to speak, but they use that word barbaroi or barbarian to refer to anybody that wasn't Greek because the Greeks were the sophisticated ones. The Greeks were the ones that had art and literature and philosophy and everybody else's language just sounded like bar, 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 and that's where the word barbarian comes from. So these are not savage people, so to speak. These are, these are people that are probably part of the Greco-Roman culture. We see that they have a, an official named Publius. It's a, it's a really cool story here that I could talk about more, that the gospel is going beyond just the Jews and just the Gentiles, even to the barbarians. And there were many people in the church, even throughout history, that had to learn that God loved those people just as much as he loved those that maybe had more of a grand civilization, you could say. But anyway, they're helping these shipwrecked men. And Paul's volunteering to help. Paul's never idle. <laughs> Paul just got shipwrecked. He said, no, no, I can, I can help you. I can help set up chairs. I can vacuum the sanctuary. I can put some sticks on a fire. And he gets bit by a snake, a venomous snake. So you, you come out of your shipwreck. You've been in prison for two years, angry mob after angry mob, and now there's snake bites. And everybody assumes, ah, justice is after him. And you might see that that's capitalized because this is the Greek word dike. It's a reference to the goddess justice, whom you've seen probably depicted before. And if you go into a courtroom, there's the woman with the scales in her hands and the blindfold. That's the Greek goddess dike. It means justice, the blind goddess. So they're saying he thought he could get away, but now he's, he's going to get bit by a snake. And they're watching him, waiting for him to swell up and die. What does that look like? He's like, guys, I'm fine. I'm really going to be okay. Oh, we'll see, murderer. <laughs> but he feels no ill effects from the bite. It reminds us of Luke 10, 19. Jesus said, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. And after a while, the people say, Oh, this isn't a murderer. This is a god. It's, it's amazing how Paul gets mistaken for gods twice in this book. This happened in Acts chapter 14 back in Lystra. Remember, he healed the man and they were going to sacrifice to him and then they changed their minds and stoned him and left him for dead. Uh, yeah, well, they, they, instead of casting him out as they might have done, he's brought to, it says, the chief man. And we're not sure if this is the Roman official or if this is the Maltese official. It really doesn't matter. And it says in verse, I, I believe it's verse 7, that they treated us well. 
which is Luke and Aristarchus, remember, who are traveling with Paul here. Publius's father had fever and dysentery. There were certain diseases that were around the Mediterranean Sea, these gastric fevers that were very painful and very miserable and very deadly. But Paul lays hands on him and prays for him, and he's healed. Word gets out, and the next day, everybody else on Malta shows up with all of their sick folks, and they were cured also. Now, we know from the next verse, they stayed there for three months. He says that they honored us greatly. That, that in Greek is timais etimesan, which means they honored us with honors. They took good care of the prisoner, Paul. The Lord takes care of his people, doesn't he? But this story is very reminiscent of the life of Christ. This happened to Jesus a lot. He'd blow into town. He'd do one cool thing, and then he wouldn't be able to do anything else because everybody would show up with all of the sick people. This was one of the first things that happened. He went to the synagogue, and there was a demon-possessed man that stood up, and he cast out the demon. It was the Sabbath day, so everybody waited until evening. But that evening, they all showed up, beating down Peter's door, saying, hey, he's got to pray for my son. He's got to pray for my grandma. It's happened everywhere Jesus went. And I think Luke, who of course wrote one of the Gospels, is deliberately trying to draw out those parallels here. He's trying to show that the ministry that Jesus had is the same ministry that Paul and Peter and Stephen and the other apostles were carrying out. As we read in the book of Acts 1 at the very beginning where he says, I told you in my first account all the things that Jesus began to do and to teach. The implication being that the book of Acts and the church age after that is everything that Jesus continued to do. He just did it through his church. That the church is the continuation of Jesus' ministry. We believe that. Jesus himself said in Mark 16, verses 17 through 18, each one of the Gospels gives us a different version of the Great Commission, but together they bring a great picture out. But this is what it said in Mark's Gospel. These signs will accompany those who believe. Not the apostles, not the prophets, not the pastors, those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. There it is. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Jesus said it. And in the book of Acts, we see it. Now, when you open up to that passage, there's probably a footnote in your Bible that mentions that the ending of Mark is, is not in some of the manuscripts we have. We've talked about textual critical issues before. There are very good reasons to include it in the Gospel of Mark, not least because the people that say you should have a shorter ending want to end it with they saw that Jesus was not in the tomb and then they didn't tell anybody about it. That's not how the story ends. and That's not how Peter would have ended his Gospel either. But either way, even if you want to say, I'm not so sure about that, you see it in the book of Acts, and we've seen it throughout church history, so it's true. Throughout the book of Acts, we've seen this. Healing has been attendant to the preaching of the gospel. And the book of Acts is held up as our example for life in the church, which means we ought to look for the same things in our own lives. As we try to bring the good news to the world, the Lord desires to support that message with miraculous signs, with wonders, and especially with bodily healing. And, you know, I'll be honest with you. Sometimes I look at the way things are and the generations that are around us and the lies that the world has believed and the philosophies they're into, and I think, how are we supposed to reach these people? How are we supposed to get to some of these hard hearts? Well, the Lord is historically broken into cultures like that by demonstrating his power 
through miracles and healing. So why can't the Lord do the same thing with us? We sure need it. People used to say, when I would bring this up in, in high school and stuff, I went to a Christian school, they didn't believe in healing and stuff, and they'd say, well, look, we have the Bible, we don't need it. The culture has already accepted the truth of God, basically, and, and now it's just about us reminding them. Well, that's not true anymore. I doubt it was true then. Now, of course, there are charlatans, there are deluded people, who say, the Bible says we can pick up snakes. So I've got a box of rattlesnakes back here. We're going to pass them out. Everybody take one. And if you get bit, well, you didn't have enough faith. That is so not what the Bible says. I have a good friend of mine named Chris Vanover. Maybe we'll have him down here sometime. But he says, I, I, I grew up in a, in a backwoods church. And we had all kinds of problems. But our one claim to fame was at least we're not that snake handling church down the street. And so I'm like, Chris, they really, is, oh, yeah. I said, you'd think like people would die from that. He goes, they do die. They die all the time. I'm like, well, why don't you hear about it? Well, because they didn't have enough faith. That is so not what the word says. And there's other people that want to take healing and they want to sensationalize it into a way to make money. And we look at that and we go, oh, that is so messed up. And I know that there are those in this room, those of us who have been hurt by people that have come in and said, you just didn't have enough faith. That's why this bad thing happened to you. But as I said, we're not going to let bad examples drive us from what the Word of God says. We've seen what healing does in this passage. And I've already stated the theology plainly. We know where we're going to conclude. But I want to back up now. I want to look at what the Bible says and walk through this and explain the foundations of these things. So, first of all, we're going to look at the theology of this. Why do we believe this biblically? Every benefit and every blessing that we enjoy as Christians is because of what Jesus Christ did at the cross. Amen? All the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. The only good we have comes from Christ. Not just, of course, what he did at the cross, but that he rose again on the third day. And that he is now seated at the right hand of the Father, where it says in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me. And in the upper room, before Jesus went to the cross, he promised his disciples that after I go... I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to be with you. He called him the comforter or the helper, however your Bible translates that. In John 16, 7, he says, I know you're upset that I'm going away, but it's actually better for you that I go away. Because when I have risen and ascended, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, who's not just going to be with you, he's going to be in you, the text says. And then in Acts chapter 1, the disciples are asking Jesus political questions. Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom? He said, it's not for you to know, but here's what I do want you to know. Acts 1 verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll receive what? Power. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is what Jesus was thinking about before he ascended. The power of the Holy Spirit. Because the mission that he has left us to complete is impossible without the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why he said, tarry in Jerusalem. He says, I want you to go make disciples, but don't go anywhere until you've got the Spirit's power. Jesus himself did not do any ministry until he had the Spirit's power. Jesus lived 30 years as a carpenter. Then at his baptism, the Holy Spirit came upon him, and that's when he began to preach and to do his works. So he said, same thing for you. You're going to continue my ministry. You need the same power. 
Now, in the past in the Bible, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit had only come upon the heroes of the faith. Moses, David, Elijah, guys like that. And the Holy Spirit would come upon for a time. It would come upon for that season, and then he would pass away or go away. But Joel, you know this passage, Joel the prophet prophesied there's a day coming where the Holy Spirit is not just going to be poured out on a few, but it's going to be poured out, he's going to be poured out on all flesh. Your sons, your daughters, your servants. No regard to gender, no regard to age, no regard to class. All of God's people. And then when you get to Acts chapter 2, when they're sitting in the upper room, and you know the story, the mighty rushing wind, the tongues of fire, they begin to speak with other tongues, and everybody's hearing that goes, what is going, are y'all drunk? What is going on? And Peter said in Acts 2, 16, this is what was uttered by the prophet Joel. The prophecy that the Holy Spirit would come upon all God's people was fulfilled in the beginning of the book of Acts. So as Jesus promised, as Joel prophesied, and as Peter announced, the Holy Spirit was given by the Lord Jesus so that his church could continue his work of making disciples. Okay, we believe all of that. Good. Now, the primary work of the Holy Spirit is to affect the salvation of Christians. The Holy Spirit is drawing people. He's convicting them of sin. He regenerates us in that moment when we put our faith in Christ. And he sanctifies us throughout our life. And there are some that want to hammer that as the primary thing to the exclusion of everything else. But the simple fact is there's more. There's more than just salvation, which salvation itself would be enough. But we see that throughout the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit empowered Christians to work signs and miracles and healing to support the message of the gospel. Remember Tabitha, the woman that used to make clothes for everybody in the church, and then she died, and Peter went up and prayed for her, and she rose from the dead? It says that Stephen was doing mighty signs and wonders. Stephen wasn't even an apostle. That's the other thing. Everyone wants to say, well, the apostles. But, but nobody else. Well, Stephen was not an apostle, nor was Philip, for that matter. Now we get down to Publius' father here. It's continuing even to the end of the book of Acts. In fact, when Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 4 and 5, he said, My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul was not a good speaker. We're going to read this when we get to 2 Corinthians. People would accuse him and say, just his letters are great, but you see him in person, and it's just disappointing. And I remember talking to one of my professors at seminary, and he said, Paul was the greatest preacher of all time. And I said, well, it says that he was a rotten preacher, actually. And he goes, well, he had to be the greatest preacher because so many people got saved. And I was like, but it says that people got saved and believed Paul. Why? Because of the power of the Spirit at work in his life. He's preaching in Lystra. Nobody listened in Lystra until he saw the man who was lame, who had faith to believe, and he said, stand up and walk. Then they began to believe. Well, that cheapens the gospel. It does not. It does not. This is the way the Lord chose to do it. If that cheapens the gospel, then it cheapens Jesus' ministry too, because that's what he did everywhere he went. 
Paul said, I don't want your faith to rest in the wisdom of men. I don't want your faith to hang on a, on a charismatic preacher. I don't want your faith to hang on the arguments that I draw. I want it to rest in the power of God so that it doesn't matter who's preaching because God is at work. So we, this is our theology. Let's, let's refine it a little bit. It is clear from the word also that not everyone has the gift of healing or any other gift. You read through the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he runs through this big long list of rhetorical questions. Do all speak in tongues? No. Do all have healings? No. Do all this? No. So those that want to come and say every Christian needs to be doing this every day are missing what the Bible says. But you know what the Bible does for all of us? It encourages us to pray for the sick. And as I said, the most common objection, well, healing was used in the past, but not now. Y'all, I need chapter and verse for that. I can't just look at the world around me and say, my life doesn't line up with the Bible, therefore the Bible must have changed. What does the Bible say? Well, we don't see those things anymore. Then that should raise alarm bells. That shouldn't make us say, well, I guess God's done. Matthew 8, verses 16 through 17. Here is how we know that the, the ministry of healing was to continue until Jesus returns. Matthew 8, verses 16 and 17. Here's a verse to make some of y'all uncomfortable. Me too. That evening they brought to Jesus many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. You know that passage. That's Isaiah 53. Who has believed our report? That one. He was despised and rejected, but he bore our illnesses. He bore our griefs. I tend to read passages like that and go, oh, yes, metaphorical illnesses, metaphorical diseases. He's talking about the disease of sin. But when Matthew is writing his gospel, he said that fulfillment of Isaiah 53 happened when people were being physically healed. Matthew tied the healing power of Christ to the cross. The power that continues through the church by the same Holy Spirit. Now you could push that way too far, but let's just, let's just let that sink in for a minute. Matthew saw the same prophecy that prophesied the forgiveness of sins and the death of Jesus on the cross. He saw that same passage as prophesying bodily healing by the power of Christ. So let's summarize here. Jesus won for us the power of the Holy Spirit at the cross. He sent the Holy Spirit to us to empower us to continue that ministry. And that that ministry, part of it, is the ministry of healing, bodily, physical healing. That's the theology of this. And I, <laughs> I'm not too interested in hearing other folks' opinions on this. Because what does the Bible say? So that, that's the direct theology, that the Bible just comes out and says it. But there's other conclusions you can draw by looking at the instructions that the Bible gives. Sometimes the things that the Bible tells you to do, nestled in that is like, oh, there, there's something behind that. So let's look at some of this. Some of the instructions that we get in the Bible. The most common of these relates to prayer. That Jesus promised he would always hear us, that he would intercede for us when we pray, and that whatever we ask in his name we would receive. John 14, verses 12 through 14. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, whoever believes in me, not apostles, whoever believes in me, will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. 
Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, some folks want to jump in and say, no, no, greater works doesn't mean miracles. It means that we're going to see more people saved than Jesus ever did. That's true. But if we can get technical, you read through the Gospel of John. Every time he uses that word works, it's the Greek word erga, he's referring to the miraculous works that Jesus did. We expect healing because Jesus told us that we would see greater works in answer to prayer. Ask me anything in my name and I will do it. Unless you're sick, then don't ask for that because that's that's not what I'm going to do. Jesus didn't say that. And then Paul, in 1 Corinthians 12, casually mentions that there are those gifted in the church to perform miracles and specifically healing. 1 Corinthians 12, 7-11. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Spiritual gifts. To one is given through the Spirit an utterance of wisdom. To another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healing by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. That's one of those, oh, well, back up, Paul. What would you say? There are people with miracles in the church? Yeah, and healing too. And in fact, when Paul is saying he's given first apostles, then prophets, he ranks gifts of healing above helping and administrating. So, according to that passage we just read, if you believe that there are still gifts of wisdom and knowledge and faith being given, then according to that same passage, you must necessarily believe in the gifts of healing, too. So, well, I don't, I've seen lots of people with the gift of wisdom, lots of people with the gift of helps. I've not seen anybody with the gift of healing. Do you know why I think that is? Because I think there are many people that God would desire to give that gift to who would never even consider it because of either bad theology or reacting to bad actors. A lot of times the people that have the gift of healing, and they are there, a lot of times they get really wrapped up in their own ego and in their own ministries, and they get caught into some sort of carnal sin to where the rest of us goes, I don't want anything to do with that. We say, how is that possible? If they've got a miraculous gift, then surely they should be immune from sin. Yeah, no, that's not how it works. There are preachers with the gift of teaching that get caught up in that all the time. It certainly is true. So we see all those things. We go, nope, I'm not touching that ever again. And the Lord's like, hey, I'd like to empower you to heal people. Go, ah, anything but that, Lord. What about miracles? Ah, no, not that either. So we've got those two passages where Jesus said, ask me anything in my name and I'll do it. Greater works. You've also got this passage where Paul said, there are those in the church that have these gifts. But let's get to the most direct passage. You knew I was going here. That tells you both to seek and to expect healing in the church. James chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. This is what your Bible says. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. There's a verse we love to spiritualize. Confess your sins and God will heal your relationships. That's true, but that's talking about physical, bodily healing. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. That's biblical apostolic instruction. James, classically, 
does not mince words, does he? This is the same guy that said, faith without works is dead. This is the guy who said, if you can't control your tongue, your religion is useless. Well, he gets here and he says, if you're sick, let the elders pray for you. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. He doesn't nuance it. He doesn't hedge his bets. He just tells us to seek the Lord for healing and to expect it. Jesus raised the bar of expectation. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Paul told us there would be healers in his church. And James tells us, pray together for the sick. Which means if we're getting all that instruction, clearly the apostles expected there would be healing going on in the church. So, well, that's, that's just for the early church. That doesn't count for our generation. Well, you can't throw out the rest of the book of James or the rest of the book of 1 Corinthians or the rest of the gospel of John, God forbid. This is what the Bible says. To conclude that God never intended the church to seek healing or to expect healing is, is to misread the scripture. There's no other conclusion to be drawn here biblically. All of our objections don't come from the Bible. They come from life, which should cause us to step back a minute. And I'm not saying those things are not important, but they are not as important as what the Word says. So we read these passages, and yet every one of us, to some degree or another, is skeptical when it comes to this issue. I can see it in your eyes. <laughs> I confess Every single time, can I tell you the truth? Every single time I teach a message like this, where I talk about miracles or I talk about something supernatural, I go home and I do this. Oh, what did I teach that for? Oh, it's, it's, so, it's, it's putting it right out there and like the enemy comes in and whispers in my ear, do you really think that people can be healed of their sicknesses? Do you really think that? We all understand that temptation, don't we? At the very least, well, I don't want to get too enthusiastic about it. Well, why not? The fact is, when I preach this stuff, I have to, because it's what the Word says. But when I preach it, I want to sink into the floor sometimes. Why? Well, the fact is because we, very often, do not see healing regularly. There are churches that see that. I hope that we can become one of those churches by the grace of God. So we don't see it regularly, and the people who do believe in healing and won't shut up about it are often the most carnal people in the church. They're often the most doctrinally unsound people in the church. There have been people that have been caught lying about people's healings. God save those people when they stand before the Lord someday. Well, what do we do? Well, first of all, we need to correct our expectations here. Because the people that want to go off in false teaching land, they, they want to talk all about how all you've got to do is, is basically shout your healing into existence and it'll come. But the Bible deals with circumstances where people were not healed. So let's take a look at these. Let's give biblical reasons why healings don't happen. And I'll tell you guys, this is probably going to be the most painful part of this message today. But I hope the Lord will give us the grace to receive it. We're going to look at three passages here where the healing did not come, and we're going to see why the Bible puts it that way. First one is in 2 Corinthians 12, 7-9. Paul was talking about all the great things God has done for him, and he said, To keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. A lot of people believe Paul had some sort of disease with his eyes, because he talks a lot about how he couldn't see very well. 
and uh, whatever it was, it's a messenger to continue of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Here's the first reason why healing doesn't always come. Sometimes it's not God's will to heal. We do not serve an algorithm where if you put in the correct functions, healing will pop out. It has to. God is a person. God is a sovereign, personal God. He knows what's best for you. And sometimes, as in the case of Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, he knows it is better to withhold the miracle for the sake of that person. That's what the Bible says. But if you just in your spirit went, oh, good. I don't have to believe all this stuff then. I've got an escape hatch. Don't do that. When you, when you say, well, God doesn't always want to heal. That is theologically true. But if that's going to be your default position, you are out of biblical balance. We use that verse as an escape hatch, and we wrap our lack of faith in spiritual-sounding language. I've heard people, I don't even want God to heal me because, you know, his strength is made perfect in our weakness. When really what's going on is, I just can't put myself out there and get my heart broken again. This passage does not negate the fact that God has told us to pray in faith. And the fact that Paul prayed three times. Paul's expectation was that he would be healed. And this was a time where the Lord said no. We've got to know that sometimes God is going to say no. Okay? That's the first thing. That's obvious. It's hard, but it's obvious. Let's look at another time. Where God wanted to heal. This is a time when it was God's will to heal. But there was a failure on the human end. Matthew 17, verses 14 through 20. When they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, oh, faithless and twisted generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. There are many of us here who have been hurt by people who have use the lack of faith excuse to do some terrible damage to God's sheep. That is wrong. However, that does not negate the fact that there are cases where it is true, where because of our lack of faith, the Lord is unable to do what he wants to do. James chapter 1 verse 7, I'm not going to read it, but James said, when you pray, you should ask without wrath or doubting. He says, because a man who doubts is like a, a ship tossed in the water and shouldn't expect anything from God. This same story in another passage from not Matthew, one of the other Gospels, where he says, Lord, if you can, heal my son. And Jesus goes, if you can, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. The man said that famous verse, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And that was enough for Jesus. But the fact remained that these disciples should have been ready to do that. 
It was God's will, but the shortcoming was on their end. I know that it's hard for some of us to hear, but the Bible tells us that sometimes God does want to do things, but we have not the capacity to receive it. So we shouldn't be afraid to look inward. If you've been praying for something for a long time and nothing's been coming, take the time to examine yourself. Don't put so much pressure on your shoulders, but just say, Lord, is there some sin that is quenching the spirit in my life? Am I just doing this out of obligation? Is there a lack of faith in my heart? Lord, show me. God will tell you. God's not going to keep a secret from you. But what about when it's God's will to heal and the person involved is spiritually ready and the healing still doesn't come? Jesus himself had a story like this in Mark chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. When Jesus came to Nazareth, his hometown, and he began to preach, and they said, this is Mary's kid. And he's walking around preaching like he's somebody and strutting around with his disciples, and it said they were offended at him. So it says in Mark 6, 5, and he, Jesus Christ the righteous, could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. The Lord was willing. Jesus was ready. But there was an atmosphere of unbelief in that place. The people were so opposed to even the idea that Jesus Christ could do anything for them that nothing could happen. These are these reasons why healing doesn't come. Number one, sometimes it's not God's will. Number two, sometimes we have a lack of faith, a spiritual shortcoming. And number three, sometimes there is just an overwhelming atmosphere of unbelief. It can quench the Holy Spirit's healing power. Nothing can stop God. Jesus Christ himself could not do any great work there. Could he have just forced himself on these people? Yes, but God acts in response to people's faith. And the thing is, we absolutely live in an atmosphere of unbelief. We are living in the same kind of place, same kind of culture as Nazareth, aren't we? Where people are offended at Christ and have no possibility in their mind that the Lord could do anything miraculous for them. We are the most skeptical generation. We would rather believe nonsensical explanations if they're wrapped in scientific language than just to have simple faith that God is good and God is all-powerful. So, it stands to good biblical reason why we do not see widespread miraculous healing in America. Because the people have no faith. They're like the church of Laodicea. They think that I'm rich. I've, I don't need anything. I've got everything I need. I don't need God. But how have we let that infiltrate the church? Do we only have faith for things that we can't measure? That's dangerous. Remember when Jesus healed the man that they lowered in through the, through the ceiling? They ripped up the tiles of the roof and they lowered the guy down in front of Jesus and he's lame, he's paralyzed and Jesus looks at him and what did Jesus say? Your sins are forgiven you. And they said, oh, how dare you? Who, who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus said, well, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk? We all know the answer. It's much easier to say your sins are forgiven. For some reason, for us, it is easier for us to believe that God is going to forgive our sins than it is he's going to heal our bodies. Because we pray for the Lord to heal our body, we're going to find out just about immediately the answer. Which tells me that there's something wrong with our faith. If we believe that, well, I'll believe in anything as, as long as you can't really prove it or disprove it. It's, 
That's, that's not faith. That is not faith. That's the God of the gaps that the atheists always accuse us of. But you know what Jesus said in that story? He said, but do you want to know how I have authority to forgive sins? Do you want me to prove it to you? Take up your bed and walk. He said both things. So listen, there are some false teachers out there that love to use healing to steal money from poor, desperate people. Those people are, are going to stand before God and the Lord says, I'm going to tie a millstone around your neck and throw you into the sea. Now we can scoff at that. Sometimes you turn on religious TV and it's the funniest thing you've ever seen in your life. Remember a guy who was, you know, he was selling his sweatbands and he had, you know, hey, this is the Bible that I use and these are the socks that I use. You can buy all these. That, that dude goes to bed laughing every night. These people are so stupid. Now we can look at that and we can laugh because it's kind of funny. And we can scoff at it and get angry about it. And we should in some cases. But rather than just saying, you know what, forget it then. I don't even want to talk about healing anymore. Every single one of you, when I said we're going to talk about healing today, you said, where's he going with this? Where's he going with this? What kind of church is this? Rather than that, we ought to say, that's wrong. But what does the word say? Say, some of that is right. We need to reclaim it. This is what happened in the Reformation. They said, look, the church has gone crazy. And their response was not, forget it, we're leaving the church. It was, we're going to get back to the word, find out what the Bible says, and then believe that with all of our hearts. Is healing promised every single time? No, but our default attitude should be to seek the help of our good father. Do you know that there's a story in the Bible where there was a man who was rebuked by the Lord for seeking the physicians instead of praying for healing? 2 Chronicles 16, 12, King Asa. It was a demonstration of how he had fallen from the Lord that when he was diseased in his feet, he sought the physicians rather than the Lord. Now, I'll never stand up here and tell you it's wrong to go to the doctor, but if you're going to do, the doctor will heal me, and if not, maybe we'll go ask for prayer at the church. That's backwards. It's backwards. And I, as I said, my sister is a nurse. My brother-in-law is a doctor. So I have no objections to medical care. However, the Lord's like, come here first. Come to me first. There's a story of uh, Pastor Chuck Smith's family who founded the first Calvary Chapel. His uh, older sister, he wasn't born yet. He was still in his mother's womb, I believe. But she fell into the pool and drowned. And her, his mom picked her up out of the water. And instead of running to the hospital, ran to the preacher's house. He said, you need to pray for my daughter. The preacher prayed for her and she recovered immediately. But she said, Lord, if you give me back my daughter, I'll give you my son and you use him for your glory. And Chuck Smith became a great preacher, as we all know. Now, to then take that and, and to prescribe something for your life would be incorrect for me to do that. The point is, the Lord honors faith, doesn't he? You know what the Lord does? The Lord, th this drives some of us crazy. The Lord will use people who have faith, and some bad doctrine way more than he uses people who have perfect doctrine and no faith. Have you noticed that? So, well, how are all those people getting saved? Their doctrine's wrong. It's like, because they're the ones doing it. They're the ones praying. They're the ones who believe. The Lord goes, I can work with faith, but if your inertia has got you standing still, it's much harder for me to jumpstart that. 
It's called having a form of godliness, but denying its what? Power. So we've seen today that Jesus Christ's work on the cross has won for us the gift of the Holy Spirit who empowers us and makes real the promise of healing in the church. We seek it, we expect it in faith, while still acknowledging God's sovereignty. But I might add one more principle here that it seems to be in seasons of revival that God pours out the gifts of healing more. I think it's, I think it's verifiable. There are times of history where the Lord does, like, we're going to do a full court press. You know, we're going to blitz. There's going to be all kinds of miracles, all kinds of healing, all kinds of salvations. The Lord's going to bring in the harvest. We call that revival. And that there are seasons of that. But that should not stop us. You know, preaching is also better during revival. That doesn't mean we stop preaching until revival comes. And you know what, you guys? Let's, let's, now that we've established our biblical foundation, let's talk about our experience for a minute. We've seen miraculous healing in this room, right there. We're sitting right there where we were praying for Emily and laying hands on her and anointing her with oil, and the Lord healed her instantly. We know that. That happened here. And yet, we're still hesitant. Why? Because you have an enemy who hates you and wants to, wants to cloud your mind and tell you, no, that was a special one-time thing. God's not going to do that again. Chapter and verse, sir. That's not what the Bible says. I have a friend up in, uh, named, named Dave up in Virginia. He was up at his church, and they have a homeless food bank. And this woman came in and asked for prayer for healing. He prayed for her. She had a cancerous tumor in her back, and her tumor fell out into her hand. She came back and showed her, look, my tumor fell out. <laughs> and then people started coming to this homeless shelter saying, hey, can I speak to the healer, please? He goes, we don't have a healer here. Well, so-and-so told Oh, uh, well, I, mean, I can pray for you. And I'm like, Dave, why do you keep that story to yourself? Well, I don't want to make it all about me. Ah, you see the temptation there? We hear that story and we go, well, if he could do it for him, he could do it for me. But the devil's like, shh, keep it quiet. I know a couple, two friends of mine that were in Haiti doing a medical missions tent. Again, we believe in medicine. But a lady brought her baby, and the doctor that was there said, ma'am, your, your baby's dead. There's nothing I can do for your baby. So these two ladies ran out and were praying for this woman, and they said, let's pray for your baby. They prayed for that baby, and that baby rose from the dead in his mother's arms. The baby was dead. They came to the clinic, and the doctor said, I can't do anything for your baby. They went and prayed, and now that baby is alive today. And everyone else goes, okay. <laughs> how, how, uh, how trustworthy are these people? The most trustworthy people I know, let's put it that way. There was a woman I prayed for back in Lynchburg where she came up and she was about to go in for a surgery consultation because her neck was so tight and she couldn't hardly move it. And we prayed for her and we, I prayed for her twice. And I said, now, now move your neck. And she was all of a sudden able to move her neck. And she goes, oh, great. Canceled her consultation and is fine to this day. Let me tell you what happens when the Lord does miracles in your life. Because you think God's going to do a miracle and then I'll never doubt ever again. Ha. That happened to me, and it was the coolest thing ever. I come here, and I've talked about it before, but I'll have moments where I'll go, was that, was that, really, was that really a healing, though? Or was that just like she was, you know, was able to crack her neck, and it, and it got better? And So then I, I saw, not long ago, the other guy that was praying for her with me. And you know what he goes? He goes, do you remember that time we prayed for her, and she was healed on the spot, and her neck was much better? Go, oh, yeah, I remember that. He goes, dude, she talks about that all the time. And then the Lord's like, yes, Tyler, it was a real miracle. Stop doubting it. 
And you know what? Every single one of you has a story like that, either in your personal life or in somebody close to you. And everybody thinks they're these special treasures that are unique to me. They're not. They're for all of us. But we keep them to ourselves. Well, Jesus told people to not, not tell anybody, right? Yes. But now he said what in Matthew 28? Go. Go tell everyone. His hour came. His hour had not yet come, but his hour has come. And now we need to let each other know. We've got to testify to what God has done to build faith in each other. Shame on me and shame on all of us for keeping that stuff to ourselves. What, are we embarrassed? We're embarrassed. People can say, oh, I, I don't believe that. Well, they're wrong, aren't they? Everybody wants to say, oh, well, I want to see some x-rays. Good grief. <laughs> but you know what? Every single one of us believes the stories from overseas, don't we? There's miracles happening in Africa. There's miracles in Brazil. There's miracles in India. And we go, and in America. Well, maybe, you know, I've never seen it. Nanda, who's our, our missionary friend in Nepal, I was talking to him and had a good long talk about the Hindu religion over there and how hard it is to speak to somebody because that, that religion is a vacuum, you know. They have 30-something million gods. So you tell them about Jesus, they say, sure, what's one more? And they put it right there on the shelf. And it's very difficult. And I said, how do, you, how do you share the gospel with a Hindu, Nanda? And he says, almost all of them get saved because of a healing in their life. I said, really? He said, how many? He goes, 95%? I said, really? He says, yeah. These people will not abandon their gods until they have seen that their gods are inferior to the true and living God and his son, Jesus Christ. And those pastors we were training, were some of them were possessed. Some of them were witch doctors. Some of them had TB and were healed of that. There was a woman that told a story of how she had been cursed by an idol in her house, her and her daughter, but they prayed to the Lord Jesus and he delivered them like that. We hear those stories and go, hooray! But then we want to bring it home and all of a sudden you're in Nazareth again and we start doubting. I think it's because we're embarrassed. And that's a shame. And we ought to repent of that. Our first instinct as Christians ought to be to pray for the sick. And not, not careful prayers. Do you know what a careful prayer is? Careful prayer is when you pray five or six things so that no matter what happens, you can say, God answered the prayer. Please pray for me. I'm sick. Lord, we pray that you would heal them. But if you don't, Lord, we also pray. What have you just done? You hedged your bets because you don't want God to be embarrassed. Well, if I pray for them to be healed and then they're not, they're going to think God has no power and then their soul is going to be lost and it's going to be all my fault. You think too highly of yourself. Trust the Lord. Step out in faith. Peter said, Jesus, can I come and walk on the water? Peter, don't ask him that. He didn't say we could do that. Jesus said, okay, come on. Come on out. Pray bold prayers in Jesus' name. Now, now, don't overdo it to where you're like bossing God around. God, I command you. Whoa. <laughs> Take it easy. But pray boldly. Like, pray like, like you believe that the Lord can do it. And keep praying, by the way. I, I, we have a bad habit of when we pray for the sick, they're like the shortest, fastest prayers, and we want to get out of there. When you're praying for somebody who is sick, you need to just plan to take some time and pray. Pray and then say, how are you feeling? I don't really feel any different. Let's pray again. How are you feeling? I still don't feel any different. And then you say, you know, is there, any, is there any unconfessed sin in your life? Is there anything that God's been kind of working through that you feel like you're, you're kind of stuck up against? Uh, no, not really. Okay, then let's pray again. And ask the Lord to give us discernment. 
And sometimes we pray and say, well, it feels a little better, but I don't know. I guess that's not really anything. Don't let him get away. No, no, keep praying. Because Jesus said what? Keep knocking. Keep asking. Keep seeking. Be like that persistent widow that bugged that judge so much. Said, fine, if you'll leave me alone, here you go. God's a good father. We need to be prepared to pray for the sick. And also, you need to be stepping out to be sharing the gospel. You know who sees miracles the most? Evangelists. People that are out there talking to people that are bound up in stuff. Evangelists see miracles. I've said this before. The Holy Spirit gives us power not to be bodybuilders, but to be athletes. Bodybuilders have really great looking muscles. They don't do anything with them. Athletes might not look as good, but they get in the game and they play. That's what the Holy Spirit does for us. He empowers us to get in the game. At the very least, you might say, okay, I think I'm with you, but I just don't know. It's so hard. Can we at least agree that we should be praying more? Can we at least say that, that we're going to pray more with more faith and less skeptical? If you ever start praying and immediately like you're, some atheist comedian that you watched on TV starts ringing in your head and you start praying to impress him or some friend you know that is real skeptical about this stuff, get out of there. Stop that. You think about the Lord Jesus Christ. Rise up and take hold of what you believe. This is the deal. There, there are some of us that maybe aren't there yet. Most of you in this room, I know for a fact, believe these things to be true. It's time you started living like it. That finger's pointing right back at me too. There's no room for pessimism in God's house. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Let me read this verse to you as we wrap it up here. Psalm 103, verses 2 through 3. You know these, but maybe you haven't thought of them in quite this way. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity. Amen and who heals all your diseases. Amen. So we read this passage in Acts 28, where Paul was bitten by a viper and didn't die. And then he went to the governor's house, prayed for his father, and he recovered. And then everybody else on that island came and asked for healing, and they all recovered too. Do you notice something else? Luke was with Paul. What was Luke's occupation? He was a physician. Paul didn't say, hey, I've got Luke. He's a great doctor. He said, let me pray for you. Because I believe in a God who raises the dead and heals the sick. <laughs> I was once rebuked, not in person, but I read a book where an author said that it is a shame that most preachers, when they come to passages about healing, talk about everything except healing. <laughs> we were able to do that today, though. What God did for Paul, he can do for you. He's your good father. His son sits at his right hand interceding for you. He sent his Holy Spirit to empower you for ministry. An important part of that is healing as a witness to the resurrection. When Peter healed the man at the gate beautiful, he said, this is to prove to you that Jesus did rise from the dead. I don't care about opinions. I don't care about experiences. Well, I had this thing. I, you know what? There are experiences, but what does the word say? I don't care about, well, there's a principle. There's a broader principle. What does the word say? I care about the word. And that's what we've tried to teach today. But the thing is, when we read what, just what the Bible says, the Bible puts us in a pretty spectacular position. But the Bible has made these incredible promises, and we go, that doesn't fit my life. 
So then we start to say, well, maybe there's more to it than that. I'll end with a story. Many of you know Andrew Murray. He was a South African pastor who wrote some incredible books, one of them called With Christ in the School of Prayer. You maybe have heard of Absolute Surrender, outstanding, outstanding books. He was one of the most popular preachers and writers at the time. And then in 1900, he printed a book called Divine Healing. It was all about what the Bible has to say about the healing of the sick. And there's many of the same things I said today. All the other Dutch Reformed pastors, his denomination, signed a petition to have that taken out of print because people in their churches were reading it and then coming and asking for them to pray for them because they believed that God could heal them. And they said, we're not prepared to handle this. Isn't that a shame? Rather than saying, you know what, maybe I should get prepared to handle this. Or maybe we should just step out in faith. They said, shut it up. Shh, don't talk about it. Well, we can't do that. If what I've said today is not biblical, then discard it. But if this is God's truth, then it demands that we step out in faith and we begin to seek the Lord's hand, not just for eternal salvation, which always has the priority, but for bodily healing too. Until we are willing to leave maybe some of the traditions that we've grown up with and leave some of the things that make us comfortable in church, we're never going to fully experience what we believe the Bible tells us to be true.